So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Silamus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to return sorry, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Uh, we come to a passage of scripture that uh, is meaningful to me because it has my name in it. I, when I became a believer, I didn't grow up with scripture, you know, didn't know any of the Bible stories, and so when I became a believer at about 16 years old, and I was reading the Bible, and I found this passage, and I was like, that's my name. My name is in God's book. And the truth is, of course, that if you are a believer, your name is also in God's book and will be there forever. Um, we, uh, we are in the midst of a series when we're looking at conversion stories, we're looking at uh, stories from the book of Acts that describe transformations of people coming to Jesus, meeting Jesus, and being changed. And so we're looking at these, these different people, and there are different kinds of people, and hopefully we get connected to one or two of them and find ourselves and some of their stories and benefit from that as believers. But I'm also hoping that these passages help us understand how to share the gospel better. As uh, Mark was praying, we are refocusing on evangelism, and, and we want to see how we can be more effective, more faithful in sharing the gospel. And we see a lot of examples here in the book of Acts of how to do it well. So it's helpful both for the believer who's trying to understand how to process their own conversion, but it's also helpful to the unbeliever that may get converted through our witness of the gospel. So we're looking at Barnabas and Paul beginning their first missionary journey, and they're preaching the gospel on the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas is from. So they go to his home country and, and preach the gospel there. They speak in the synagogues where typically they started. And then they get summoned, they get invited to present the gospel to a very important official, the most important official in that place on Cyprus, proconsul Sergius Paulus. And before they can do that, this is an exciting opportunity, there is a magician. It's the second magician we meet in the book of Acts. His name is Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, uh, Jesus being a very common name at the time. Uh, and he has a specific influence on this official, and so he doesn't want to let go of that. 
And so he opposes Paul and the preaching of the gospel and is severely rebuked, supernaturally struck blind for a time. Um, it's interesting that as you read this story, there's a couple of things that are important to notice to put that in context. One is that Luke, the author of Acts, goes out of his way to point out that Sergius Paulus was a man of intelligence. He was an intelligent man. He was a smart person, and he believed the gospel. And then Elymas, or Bar-Jesus, this, this magician, and Elymas means a wise one, uh, or a magician would be another way to, to translate it. Elymas, the wise, the wise one, doesn't accept the gospel. So you have supposedly two smart people, two wise people. One accepts the gospel, one doesn't. And so I think this whole passage encourages us and invites us to consider the role of thinking or reasoning in the Christian faith. So that's the direction I'm going to go with this text this morning. So first, let's examine, examine the importance of reason, the value of reason. Secondly, let's consider the use of reason. And I'm actually going to demonstrate how we can use reason in evangelism. And finally, let's discover the most compelling reason to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, importance of reason. Is faith against reason? Are faith and reason on the opposite sides of the spectrum, juxtaposed one to another? pitted against each other? Well, many secular people certainly think so. Uh, many people, people's perception is that Christians do not think, that we do not like to think. And if we thought more deeply, we wouldn't believe what we believe. And that we find comfort in irrational, blind faith. We're sort of just weak people, and we need something to hold on to in this life. And instead of thinking and embracing some hard truths about reality, we would rather believe in things that are comforting to us, like heaven, stuff like that. Now, it's not just the secular people that pit faith against reason. Many Christians also avoid entertaining any objections to Christianity for fear of those objections destroying their faith. And so many Christians choose not to think, not to reason not to use arguments or, or consider arguments against or pro our faith because they think, if I think too deeply, I will let go of my faith. But the Bible says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's interesting that Scripture itself does not, in fact, pit faith against reason. That's not what Scripture does. And yes, to be sure that biblical categories of wisdom and folly are more complex than just reason, logical thinking, but they certainly include that. Biblically, wisdom is one's ability and acceptance to see the world from God's point of view and to live according to it. Wisdom is actually a moral category in Scripture. But it includes reasoning. It includes understanding of the world, understanding of human nature, understanding of community, understanding of God, certainly, in the right way, and then applying that and living it out and making right, wise choices. So the wise person is one who understands God's view of reality, 
accurate view of reality and lives accordingly, and reason is essential to that. Our faith, the Christian faith, is based on God's revelation. It's something that's revealed to us. So no one can go from ignorance to uh, personal knowledge of God simply by reasoning. Reason isn't enough, and I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. However, God's revelation, what's given to us, what's revealed to us, explains and supports our experience of reality. So Paul says, for example, in Romans 1 uh, and verse 20, he says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Paul says that by observing the world around us, by reflecting on life, the nature of life itself, anyone can deduce that God exists and that he possesses certain attributes. And once a person accepts the special revelation of Jesus, so the gospel itself, the gospel, that gospel, that message, then makes sense of our experience even more. Because Jesus himself is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Now, I've used this quote before. I'm going to use it again. This comes from Jen Pollock Michelle, and I think she puts it exactly right by saying, I am a Christian for all sorts of reasons, she says, because I met Jesus when I was 16, because my parents raised me in a Christian church, because I believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, because I find credibility in the sacred scriptures. I am also a Christian because I think Christian theology has explosive explanatory power, especially for describing the human condition. The Christian faith tells me who I am in ways that seem most accurate to my human experience. What Michelle is saying is that if you accept the gospel, if you read scripture, if you hear the, the Christian essence, that actually is the best way to make sense of who we are. It actually fits our experience. And that's partly why she is a Christian. That's partly why I am a Christian. It makes sense to me. Once I heard the gospel, it made sense, and it fits with my experience of reality. So a faithful Christian is a thinking Christian. We don't need to be afraid of thinking as believers. Thinking can only strengthen our faith. Because if the gospel is true, then the more we think about it, the more reasons we will find to believe it. Now, of course, of course, we can fall into unhealthy doubt and skepticism, but I think that problem has more to do with the heart than with the mind, I think. So this Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, believed the gospel. He believed the gospel. The implication is that intelligent people can believe the gospel. Thinking is not opposite to faith, but actually part of it. And I think Christians today need to do more thinking. In some ways, of course, thinking is countercultural. Our lives are not conducive to thinking. They're full of noise and distractions and haste. But a Christian, 
especially a Christian, any person, but especially a Christian, must make time and opportunities to think and to strengthen their faith by reasoning. C.S. Lewis has this great passage in, in Screwtape Letters, and Screwtape Letters is a book about a senior devil training a junior demon in tempting and keeping people away from God. So Lewis describes the senior tempter advising a less experienced demon how to keep his patient, somebody their client, somebody they're trying to tempt, from what Lewis calls the fatal habit of attending to universal issues. The fatal habit of attending to universal issues. And this senior devil says, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, and he means God by the enemy, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time we had some lunch. And by the time I added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. He is now safe in our Father's house. The point is that if you start thinking, if you start reasoning, it can only lead to God. Because if God is our creator, if God has devised the world a certain way, if God has devised our minds a certain way, if our minds are used appropriately and applied to any number of issues, they will in some way be leading us toward God and not away from Him. It's not a better argument that leads people away from faith. It is lack of reasoning. There's no argument strong enough to destroy our faith. If our faith is, in fact, the most accurate reflection of reality as given by God Himself. You see, if we believe that what we believe is true, and it's not true because we were told it's true, but because it's objectively true. It's how the world is. It's how our human natures are. It's how God is. If we believe that that's true, then more reasoning simply brings more strength into our faith. And there's no better argument than the gospel because the gospel is the truest view of reality. As we think, we become more convinced of the truth of the gospel and we can communicate the gospel to others better. It's amazing how few Christians really think. If anybody can think, if anybody can reason, of course, it'd be people with renewed minds. It'd be people with regenerated natures. It'd be people with the revelation of God in their hands. And so I want to call you to think. I want to exhort you to reason, to think to ponder, to reflect, to understand in light of the revelation God has given you how the world works. And as you do that, that gives you now a way to share the gospel with people that don't understand the revelation. But it gives you ways and entrance points into their lives, into their thinking 
that will potentially make the gospel more accessible to them. And I want to demonstrate that, okay? So one way to do that, to influence people through reasoning, to use reason in terms of evangelism, is to expose arguments against the gospel as invalid. Now, Paul does that, actually, in our text. That's where I get this idea. He does it in a miraculous, very dramatic way with Elymas. So look at verses 9, 10, and 11. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So, by the way, if you're going to do this, if you're going to confront somebody and call him son of the devil, please make sure that you are filled by the Holy Spirit, and please make sure that this confrontation is from God, and God is going to support that confrontation that you are causing now by striking them blind, okay? Make sure you do that. This is a very dramatic, miraculous way. I'm not saying it can't happen, but certain conditions need to be met here. But this is a dramatic, miraculous confrontation, but in it you have all the elements of an evangelistic conversation. So let me show you. As miraculous, as dramatic as this was, the essence is what we should be doing with unbelievers. Elymas was simply wrong. He was leading the proconsul away from the gospel, and Paul exposes his folly. He calls Elymas son of the devil, and by the way, there's a play in words. His name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, not the Jesus that Paul is preaching, but Paul is making that connection and says, you seem to be son of Jesus, son of the Lord, but really you are son of the devil. He's exposing it. He's saying, it may seem good, it may seem like you're leading people in the right way, but you aren't. Your source is completely different from God. He says you are an enemy of righteousness, that whatever you're teaching is not going to cause righteousness, it's not going to cause goodness, it's actually going to prevent good things from happening. You are full of lies and distortions of the truth. You make God's straight paths crooked. And now Elymas is actually made physically blind to expose his spiritual blindness. What Paul is doing, he's simply unmasking, he's simply exposing this other worldview, this other line of reasoning, this other influence as illegitimate, inadequate, and invalid. He's a blind person spiritually. How can he lead anybody? And so, after being struck blind, he's looking for somebody to lead him. And maybe, we don't know that, but maybe Elymas finds Jesus to lead him later. Now, in a less dramatic way, Paul did the same thing with his opponents throughout his ministry. He exposed his opponents' blindness through argument, through reasoning. For example, when he was in Corinth, this is Acts 18, verse 4, we are told that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. What is Paul doing? He's exposing their arguments. He's unmasking folly and he's saying, what you're teaching doesn't make sense, and what I am teaching does make sense, and he's comparing arguments. He's using reasoning, thinking, logic, 
to prove that the Christian worldview actually makes sense. Now, let me apply that strategy, and let me show you how we can reason with secular people in our own culture. Timothy Keller says that as we talk to non-Christians, it's good to question their answers before we answer their questions. We must question their answers before we answer their questions, meaning that we can also ask questions. We can also say, okay, you may not believe Christianity, but does what you believe make more sense than Christianity? And you start questioning, you start using reason, and you start arguing in a good way, you start using logic to see whether what they believe actually is better, whether the alternative explanation to our faith is adequate. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that this exercise will help you in equipping you for evangelistic conversations. But if you're not a Christian, I hope that this will help you see the gospel as a better option than the alternative is accepted in our culture today. Okay, so here we go. Number one, let me consider the secular approach to reason itself. How do you know that what you believe is true? Now, we've wrestled through this, especially the last year and a half, a lot with the question of truth. How do you know that what you believe is true? How do you know that your opponent is wrong? How do you know that your information is accurate? Are you familiar with Miles' Law? Have you heard that um, premise? It states that where you stand depends on where you sit. Have you heard that before? Where you stand depends on where you sit. Meaning that your station in life, where you grow up, where you're from, where your job is, where your position in the hierarchy is, how much power you have, largely determines your views. So you believe certain things simply because of where you're from, or who you hang out with, or what news outlet you listen to. And so if you live in a certain part of the country, if you work a certain job, if you watch a certain channel, you're likely to vote a certain way. It's not really disputable. That's just statistics. If a secular person says that they believe something is true, a Christian can rightly ask, why? Why do you believe this is true? In a universe without God, our opinions are simply outcomes of our programming. That's your influences. You grow up a certain way. You hear certain information. You have certain influences in your life, and you're going to believe certain things. It's hardly inspiring in a culture in pursuit of truth to think that our positions, our, our opinions are largely influenced by trivial factors like where you're born. But Christianity posits that there is an outside arbiter. There is someone who has a perfect knowledge of reality and is willing to communicate with us. This is a very different understanding. And I think it warrants a conversation. I think we can talk to a secular person and say, why do you believe what you believe, considering that we are just matter? And matter is molded and shaped a certain way by influences. Isn't it more logical to think that there's a possibility 
of a being who can look outside and from outside and determine what is true and what isn't. I'm not saying it's an airtight argument, but I say it's warrants a conversation. I think we can talk about that. I think we can say you have to get outside of the system to change something. Just like you don't expect the NFL to address concussions, right? I don't. You need outside influences. You need, you need the organization to be disturbed. I don't expect tobacco companies to agree that tobacco causes harm. Outside influence is necessary. So why would we think that I, in my own mind, given my influences, can determine what truth is? But Christianity says there's an outside source of truth that cuts through our influences, that cuts through our programming. Isn't it worthwhile for us to consider that option? Number two, let me ask some questions to the secular approach to justice. First was the approach to reason. This is the approach to justice. One of the most closely held beliefs in our culture today is that every person possesses inherent dignity and value. We talk about human rights and pursuit of justice for everyone in our culture. But does it make sense? Does it make sense to actually believe that? Now let me give you two quotes from atheists who applied reasoning to this position and concluded that there's no basis for the modern idea of human rights apart from the Christian doctrine of the image of God. First one is the French philosopher Luc Ferry, who is an atheist, and he writes, he describes the change, the philosophical change from the Greek worldview to the Christian worldview. And he says, in direct contradiction to the Greek worldview, Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. This is an unbeliever who's thinking through issues, who says, basically, the reason we have equality of people, the reason we believe in human rights, the reason we believe in dignity of every person and see every person as of, of, of equal value with other people is because of the Christian doctrine. An idea was unprecedented. In the Greek world, there was a hierarchy. Some people were more important than others. But when the gospel came into the Greek world... It proved by reasoning, by practice, by sacrifice that every person is made in God's image. And every person has inherent dignity. Another quote for you. Chris Berg, an Australian thinker, also an atheist, he says, even more central to our modern identity is the idea that all individuals have human rights. That simply by virtue of being human, we have basic liberties that must be protected by law. Now, everybody believes that, that just by virtue of being human, we have basic liberties that must be protected by law. This idea, too, has a deep theological origin, he says. Yet many modern human rights activists seem to believe that human rights sprang forth full-bodied and with a virgin birth in United Nations treatises or treaties in the mid-20th century. Nothing could be further from the truth. The idea of human rights was founded centuries ago on Christian assumptions advanced by biblical argument and advocated by theologians. Modern supporters of human rights have merely picked up a, a set of well-defined ethical and moral arguments. 
Do you see what they're doing? These atheist thinkers are actually reasoning it out. And they're concluding that apart from Christianity, apart of this idea that, that God is endowing us with value and dignity by creating us in His image, we don't have a basis for human rights. It doesn't mean that we don't believe it. It doesn't mean that we don't practice it. Many secular people genuinely believe that every person has dignity and value. What I'm saying is that there's just no reasonable basis for believing it. And eventually, it starts to crack. Eventually, if you believe something without a reasonable basis for it, something shifts. I think abortion is an example of that shift. That all of a sudden, we're making decisions and saying, yes, everybody is of equal value except for this class of people. And I think it's going to get worse because there's no foundational understanding. There is just a feeling that somebody has that everybody is created equal. But there's no way to base that in reasoning. If we are just matter, how come that some of us are more value, not more valuable than others? But Christianity says that we are created by God and we reflect His image. Number three, I know I'm making you work this morning, okay? But this is important. Number three, let, let me ask questions to the secular approach to love. So we talked about reason. We talked about justice. Let's talk about love. I'm picking big themes in our culture. Adele just came out with a new song. You can count on me to, to bring you the newest hits. <laughs> this is a single from her new album that is forthcoming, so wait for it. Uh, it's called Easy On Me. And in that song and in that album, she reflects on her recent divorce. And this is what she sings in this song. She says, There ain't no room for things to change when we are both so deeply stuck in our ways. You can't deny how hard I have tried. I changed who I was to put you both first, but now I give up. She's separated from her husband and, and her son, and she's saying, I changed who I was to put you both first, but now I give up. A critic comments on this song. Easy On Me, that's the name of the song, sees Adele explaining her decision to walk away from her marriage in 2019 while asking her son and ex-husband for understanding. I changed who I was to put you both first, she sings, but now I give up. That moment, so naked and unvarnished, sends shivers down your spine. Adele's voice is full of regret, but also resolve. In the accompanying vi music video, director Javier Dolan chooses this moment to transition from black and white to full color, making clear that this is the sound of a woman who has dismantled her entire world, realizing that she needn't feel guilty for putting herself first. I think this is fascinating. And I don't know her heart, I don't know the circumstances of the divorce, but since she made a song and put it on Spotify, I feel like I have the right to comment. The justification that is used here for leaving her family, her husband, her son, is essentially so she can be herself. Adele is saying, I've, I've sacrificed myself, I've changed who I was to put you first, the husband and the son, but now I give up and I'm going to be myself. 
There's regret, yes, there's loss here, but there's also a celebration of the newfound authenticity. Now, apart from the sacrifice of marriage, apart from the sacrifice of parenting, I can finally be who I really am. The implication is that you cannot be authentic if you serve someone or sacrifice yourself for someone. Christianity says that only if you give up yourself you can find who you truly are. This is the clash. This is the argument. This is, we got to reason it out. Because love, we say, love is what actually shapes us. Love is what exposes who we really are. And love is by definition sacrificial. You cannot truly love anyone if you are not sacrificing for them. In the secular culture, People are often stuck between the allure of sacrificial love because that still appeals to us and this quest for authenticity. And I don't think it can be resolved without the one who out of love sacrificed himself for us and tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. I'm giving you examples, three examples, three lines of reasoning to apply to secular worldview to show that the Christian alternative is viable. It doesn't mean we don't have our own problems. It doesn't mean that we don't have questions we have to answer. Of course we do. But what I'm saying is, is that when we think, when we apply reasoning, we can have these kinds of conversations with people who are coming from very different places, and we can present the gospel as a viable alternative in fact, the best alternative. In fact, it's better than what people already believe. And that brings me to my final point. Reasoning can get you pretty far. You can get to the point where you say, the gospel makes sense. You should consider the gospel. These pieces fit. It actually speaks to our reality better than any other worldview. But that kind of reasoning cannot convert anyone. And none of us got converted simply because we reasoned it out. Let's find out what can convert us. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. The intelligent man believed. When he saw what had occurred, which was that miracle of, of striking Elymas blind, but then it says, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sergius Paulus believed in Christ, became a Christian, embraced the biblical view of reality because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sure, he was impressed with the miracle that, that Paul performed. Of course, that's very impressive. But it was the teaching of the Lord that astonished him. This is very important to see that, that he, would, he did not get converted because he saw the miracle. Just like nobody gets converted because you heard a good argument. You get converted when you are astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You may be impressed with the Christian argumentation and logic of the gospel, but you will not embrace Christianity, you will not embrace Christ in any real way unless you become astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The Lord, of course, is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus Christ. 
and his teaching is the message of the gospel. This is what Paul taught everywhere he went, and this is what actually converted Sergius Paulus. It's the wonder at the gospel that converted him. Was there reasoning involved? Absolutely. I'm sure Paul spent significant time explaining what Scripture teaches, explaining how the world really works, explaining who God really is. But what really pushed Sergius Paulus towards Christ and made him cross over into the category of being part of God's family and God's kingdom is his astonishment at the gospel, is the wonder of the gospel. Now, what's the message that produces this kind of wonder? Well, Paul preached it everywhere he went, and if you look at his speeches in the book of Acts or Peter's speeches or anybody else's, you'll, hear, you'll see the same message, the message that God became human in Jesus, that God in human form, that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf among us, that he died unjustly in our place for our sins, and that he rose to give us a new life, and that he is coming again to make all things new. That's the gospel. And that is the message that astonished Sergius Paulus into believing, into converting, into becoming a Christian, which is no small feat for a Roman official. Jonathan Edwards calls this astonishment the sense of the heart. And he says there's a difference between knowing something is excellent, between knowing something is beautiful, and actually believing it in your heart actually experiencing it. His analogy is you can know the honey is sweet, but you don't really know honey is sweet until you taste it. There's that other thing there that's happening. It's not just your mind that's engaged. Your heart has to be engaged. You have to get an experience of its sweetness. It has to give you pleasure for you to really convert to it. Now, the perfect illustration providentially is this, right? I heard the presentation this morning. I believe Jerry and Don. I think they know what they're doing. They've explained how it works. But I needed to take a drink. It's not the same believing that it's true and actually drinking it. Those are different things. And conversion is in that latter category. You can accept Christian arguments and you can say, yeah, Christianity makes perfect sense to me. But you haven't made that step until you meet Jesus, until you find yourself in wonder of Jesus, of what he's done for you, of this message. Are you astonished at the Lord's birth? Because the Lord himself is the most compelling reason that converts you. So are you astonished at him, at his birth? The outside arbiter, the objective observer, the creator himself entered the world. And this revelation of God actually being with us allows us to see things as they really are. Are you amazed that God would become human? Are you astonished at the Lord's life, justice perfectly lived out in his life? Read the Gospels and see how Jesus treated people made in his image. Jesus lived a perfect life, life according to God's reality and expectations, and people were actually amazed at him. Lots of passages where people just walk away astonished by what he is and what he's doing. And so we are astonished and amazed at him today. Are you amazed at the Lord's death? 
this perfect, innocent person unjustly condemned and put to death. But why? Because Jesus loves us. Because he loves us. He gives his life for us. All our sins, our injustices, our failures, our selfishness are punished on the cross of Jesus. And we are free from guilt. We are free from shame because he did that. We are free from God's wrath. We are free from hell because of what he did, because he loves us. This is the kind of stuff that makes us sing every Sunday. I don't know about you. That's why I sing, and even occasionally on stage, which is very uncomfortable for me, I have to tell you. But the reason I do that is because I have wonder in my heart. Jesus is amazing. And so we will sing in just a few minutes. I stand amazed in, his, in the presence. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder, I wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean. And then we sing cheesy lines like this, how marvelous, how wonderful, except we mean it. You see, for us it is marvelous and it is wonderful. Is my Savior's love for me because he took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died for me. Are you astonished at his death? Are you astonished at his resurrection? Death couldn't hold him. He arose and, and he gives us a new life. We can live differently now as converted people because we know him and because we follow him, because we're changed by him, because his spirit lives in us. And we can live differently forever because we have a future in his eternal kingdom. We're going to take communion and sing and celebrate what he's done for us. And my prayer is that if you're not a believer, that God the Holy Spirit will produce this wonder in your heart at Jesus himself. That all the reasoning, that all the arguments you heard will click and actually drop down into your heart and you will get the sense of the heart that Jesus is sweet that Jesus is like a drink of pure water that quenches your existential thirst. May the Spirit of God do that for you.